The following is a Bible study taught at First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. At FBC, we endeavor to handle God's Word accurately, that believers may understand what God is doing through history and what He has planned for believers in the present. We hope you will find this study helpful in better knowing God. More audio and written studies can be found at graceteaching.net under resources. And now, our speaker. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll start. Father, we're thankful for the evening. We're thankful for the time together as saints. And we ask that we might encourage one another as we uh, look at these uh, last parts of the fruit from the Spirit and to think about what they mean in our lives, what they actually look like. And we would thank you for all this then. Amen. Um, I'm just going back to something we said at the beginning when we first started looking at the fruit from the Spirit is it's called the fruit from the Spirit because who produces it? The Holy Spirit. And therefore, any study of the fruit from the Spirit that even suggests that by learning what the fruit looks like, you can work at producing that, you've missed the point. I think the reason to understand what it looks like is that sometimes we, we don't always recognize the fruit from the Spirit in our lives because we don't actually know what it is. But if we're spiritual and the Spirit is producing that fruit in us, when we use that, and it's actually being used in our life, we can go, oh, that's what that is, because that's consistent with what I see the Scripture saying. Because otherwise, um, um, love is a good example. A lot, of people ex a lot of people confuse love, and think about this in terms of a marriage, the way we look, operate in a marriage, is that we look at love as like, if you love me, you're going to do everything in your power just to make me happy. And is that what love is always all about? No, because sometimes doing the best thing for your spouse isn't particularly always going to make them happy, but it's best for them. And, and my wife and I can testify, we've both been on that other side where we've had to really encourage the other person to think this way or do this, even though the other one doesn't want to. And after you've responded and you've done this, you thank them, thank, thank you. I didn't want to do that, but I really needed that encouragement or I needed that push or whatever that is. And um, so it's just an example. And I think love is an easy example of that. Joy is the same way. A lot of people think of joy as, as like happiness or giddiness. And yet, as we demonstrated, you can have joy. You can accept and appreciate circumstances with appreciation even if it's not happy circumstances, but you can appreciate what God's doing. So anyway, we're going to go down to faith, down to faith this evening, and we're going to start in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to, we're going to give you a, a definition here, and by the time you get to Galatians chapter 5, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at this. But anyway, um, so a definition of faith, faith is the attitude that takes God's promises to be true and results in an appropriate response. Now, what we mean at the end of that is results in appropriate response. If, if you are an unbeliever, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ and somebody shares the gospel with you, Christ died. Yeah. He died on the cross for your sins. He was buried, and he was again. And then what's the promise connected with that? It's actually kind of embedded in those, but for clarity, what's the promise? 
Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins by? Faith. By, by faith, by believing in him. And if you, if you do that, if you direct faith at that promise, the, the appropriate response when you believe that is let's say, let's say you're in a church that's teaching you, uh, we're in Galatians 5, if, if you're in a church that is teaching you that you need to be doing good works, you need to get baptized, you need to perform, just all that list of things that we as people project on the idea of getting saved, if you believe that gospel, what's the appropriate response? What does it say, what does it say in Romans 4 or 5? To him who believes. To him that before that. Who works, who works not but believes. So the appropriate response is to stop working to get your salvation. See, so that's a place where a person is saved by faith without any works. See, so the appropriate response is to stop trying to work and stop trying to... To, to trust in your works. That'd be one side. On the other side, we're going to look at an example of it right here. Sometimes faith is going to re result in you doing something. The gospel's the opposite. You just believe in, well, believing is faith. It's the same thing. It's just believe is the verb, faith is now. So Galatians chapter 5. Look in Galatians 5. And uh, we're going to start over here with Josh. We're going to go back to reading. I did all the reading last week, but I want you to read. And... Um, I'm going to have you read verse, uh, let me see. Let's go back to verse 5. If you read verse 5 and 6, please. For we, by the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness out from faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but faith, which works by love. Okay. So what, first question is, is this, verses 5 and 6, when it has faith in here, is this talking about how you get saved no. eternally? No. This is talking about? Results. It's talking about maturing. It's talking about growing. Okay, exactly. So, second question with that is then, um, how, what, what's happening in, when you get to end of verse 6 and you have somebody that's laying emphasis on what? Circumcision. Circumcision. Works. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're doing that, and they stop laying emphasis on their works, but they put their faith. What, what would you have to say from the last part of verse 6? Yeah. And, and when, you see, when you see love, when Paul mentions love, like the Ephesians, if you remember, I thank God when I heard about your love unto all the saints. What does that mean, your love unto all the saints? How do you hear about their love? That they sit around and have warm fuzzies for people all the time, thinking warm fuzzies? Yeah, yeah, they're serving. It's it's the attitude they have towards each other. Exactly. So in this context here, this is talking about serving. It's faith that's be, that's working through means of love. If you go down in this context, look down at verse thirteen for a minute. For you were called to freedom, not under law. This is what he's getting at, my brothers. But do not use your freedom as a covering or a way to hide the flesh. Make a, a pretext or a, a covering for the flesh. But through love, what does he say? S serve one another. So this is the second part of it. 
So this is actually, if you don't already have a note in your Bible, if they don't already include a note, I would put a note in verse 6 with love down to verse 13, where plainly and clearly he's talking about serving, serving one another uh, through love. So one of the things we can say is that faith, and this is, just, this is not talking about faith for initial salvation now. This is as part of the fruit from the Spirit. What could we say faith is doing in verse 6? What's it about again? We've already kind of... Well, I, I, you know, I've got written in my Bible, faith energized through love. And, you know, we've been looking at energy in chemistry and uh, the atoms. It, it's energy that changes them. And so this just makes me think of that because... Um, the faith is energized through love, and that love comes from eternal life, which is the light of God, and light is what energizes. So it's really kind of cool thinking about it in that way. Yeah, the word that they're translating energize here is the Greek word energeo. We do get energized from it, but the interesting thing about this, if you do a word study on this, this expression, it's used to describe when, and this is when we're talking about God now, when God always personally is working. Does God always personally work in you? Oh, no. No, because how does sometimes, when you, need, when you need help, when you need wisdom in a situation, and you ask God for that, is it always that God's going to give you a download like this? No. No. You were just used, you just used this as an example just last night in a question we were talking about at men's group. What does God do oftentimes in Ephesians 4? Opportunity to do something and then to use what you already know. Mm -hmm. And then you either have success or failure and then you learn, oh, maybe that wasn't so wise. And then you get a little more experience and then you might do it a little differently next time. Okay. That's not the example I was thinking of from last night. The example used from last night was in Ephesians 4, where it talks about all the members of the body. And sometimes you're praying for help in an area. You're trying to understand something in your life. It's not just that you're trying to understand the Word of God. You're trying to take the truth of the Word of God and figure out, how does this work in my situation right now? And you pray. And God brings another believer around. And that's the exact point in Ephesians 4, is if you say, I'll take help from this believer because I like Josh. But this believer over here, I don't like this person, so I'm not going to take help from them because you have a prejudice against them, which is a part of the problem in Ephesians. And when you do that, what you're doing is that might be the exact person that God is bringing into your life to share something with you, to help you, see? And so, God, so I, that's the illustration that sometimes God works through other people. But when it's used of enter, when energeo is used to the work of God, it's always the work of God straight immediately. The person of the God, the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, whoever person is, they're doing the direct work in that individual. Yeah, now, I was thinking more like God to me, not others to me. Yeah, and that's and they would be energized in another way through God to work towards me. But I was, you know, I was thinking of myself. Someone else. And I think in this context, that is exactly what this is. This is talking because because where do you get love from, and where do you get faith from? Spirit. 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 
So this is the Holy Spirit directly giving you the faith and the love, that, and he puts them together. And you, these are going to be used to serve somebody else. Exactly. So I'm just trying to make sure we're clear on, on how that goes. But again, here's an example where faith results in a work and the work is service. Turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Carol, when we get there, if you would read verses 14 through 17, please. Someone says his faith but does not have works. Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Okay. So what what is the point of faith in this verse, in these, this set of verses here? What's, what's he talking about? Action. Action. So the appropriate thing is, is if you really have faith in what God can do, this, is, this, is this almost a, a parallel to what we just read over there in Galatians 5? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, this is also a parallel to what John says over in 1 John 3, verses 16 and following, where he's talking about if you have the things of this world, you see your brother have a need, you close up this, well, how does the love of God dwell in you? Well, here, it's, is that real faith if it doesn't do anything? Well, I'd say yes, it's just dead. It, yeah, because you're not, if you, if you have faith, but you don't actually respond to it, let's put it that way. Because he says at the end of verse 17, so faith, if it does not have works, is dead, and our Bibles just say dead by itself, right? Isn't that the way most of your Bibles yeah. read? Mm -hmm. And what they don't translate for you there is that there's a preposition kata. It's dead measured by kata with the with the accusative form, that which is what by itself, itself, that means measured by. In other words, if you just try to measure faith just by faith, just alone, that's just looking at faith, you can't see it which is what he's going to tell you in the following verses. I'll show you my faith by what it does, and you show me your faith without, without anything, without any works. You can't. I can't see your faith. So again, um, God can't. Can. Yeah, in terms of saving faith, God can see that. But in terms of living the Christian life, the only way anybody else can see faith is if they see what it does. Keep your finger, well, you don't have to keep your finger, we're not going to come back to this verse, but turn over to Ephesians, let's add this verse here real quick, Ephesians chapter 1. And I've already made reference to this once, but I'm com uh, coming back to this, but if you go to verse 15, Ephesians 1 and verse 15, therefore I also, having heard of the faith according to you or among you, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love to all the saints. Now here's a question. When he says the faith, your faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, is he talking about the faith by which they initially got saved? No. Give me one reason we know for sure or that, that that doesn't make sense from what we know outside of this verse, from what we know about the Ephesians. What? Yeah, 
He'd been with them. He spent he spent over two years with these people. He knew these people were saved. Yeah. Ephesians 1.15. So when Paul says, I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus, he's talking about the fact that I have had testimony. I've heard witness have come to me that you guys are still directing faith. You guys are still using faith. And with that, and love unto all the saints. So here's a place where, how did Paul hear about their faith? Their faith, He heard what it was doing or what it was resulting in. Okay. Now, very quickly before we move on, not understanding the fact that faith always has a certain response, but that response is not always the same. It depends on what the promise is. As we said, if the promise is that God will forgive all of your sins because of what Jesus has done, then the proper response is to not trust in your works and not keep working to be saved. But what happens is, is people confuse that faith with the faith by which you live. The faith by which you live is going to involve faith in certain things, promises that God has made for you. I can believe all day the promise that if I walk by the Spirit, I won't fulfill the lust from the flesh. But if I don't walk by the Spirit, if I believe that, but I don't actually walk by the Spirit, am I benefiting from that? No, I'm not. I only, I only do it when I actually walk by it. Then that faith is producing something in me. And you might not see that. That's something I see. I can see it in my life. But you may not be able to, to see that. Okay. Um, let's go to Titus chapter 1. Again, if you have any questions, just stop and say, hey, hey, wait a minute. But Titus chapter 1. And Ronnie, when we get there, if you'd read verses 1 and 2. Titus Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Okay, so... I'm just curious, because we've gone over this verse many times, but I'm really curious if anybody can piece together what he's saying. Because of just the way it's worded for us in English. So the problem is, is a lot of your English translations follow the Greek, but the Greek does not move the way the English mind, the way you are designed to think in terms of English syntax when you read. You would get a C minus if you wrote like this, a paper. Okay, so let, let me just put this together, what he's talking about. Uh, he says, this is, this is according to the, he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, but according to the faith of God's chosen ones, and that faith of God's chosen ones then is also then related to this issue that's called godliness. But then this is the, this is the point, verse two. This is why you have two verses. Because verse two then starts with the preposition epi, which means on or based upon or resting on, resting on the hope and then eternal life is not the object, it's not the hope of getting eternal life, but it's the hope that comes from eternal life. So what he's talking about is, is he's setting out on this as he's opening this letter, is that you and I as believers, 
you know, Leslie already mentioned this earlier when she was kind of explaining the Galatians 5 passage, that faith, that this faith is the hope that you can actually use eternal life, that that eternal life can actually produce something. Again, part of the problem with, with explaining this or teaching this is most Christians think of eternal life simply as living forever. They think that that's all that's meant in this, right? They think eternal life just means I live forever. But you and I know better than that. Eternal life is about how you and I get to know experientially God. And how do we get to know God? By using eternal life, living it out, doing works from eternal life like God would do those. And when we have these things that are expressions of eternal life, we're going, oh, I'm getting to know God. Because this is the kind of stuff that God would do. If God were me down here doing this, this is what he would be doing. Uh, maybe a little parallel is, is, I always think it's Philip in the upper room in chapter 14 of John there where uh, he says, I'm going to the Father. And Philip says, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, Yeah, yeah. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, what he did is what the Father would have done. If the Father would have come down here instead of the Son, he wouldn't have done anything different. And you and I have the potential to do the kinds of things that the Lord Jesus Christ did during his earthly ministry. That's a big part of what the signs in the Gospel of John are all about. That's why we went through those. It's not that we walk on water. It's not that. It's the quality of life. It's, show, it's the demonstration of grace and truth that Jesus demonstrated, which John tells you in the introduction. Anyway, we're not here to go back and teach the upper room all over again. So, faith for you and I, and I've got one other verse I want you to add in here, and I don't know why I left this off, but turn to Hebrews 11, verse 1. And would you want to read Hebrews 11, 1 for us, Maria? When we get, what? Hebrews. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Chapter 1? Chapter 1. Uh, no, 11. Chapter 11, okay. verse 1. Sorry. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear, <clears throat> wear of like old clothing. You will fold them up like a cloth and um. scar them like a old clothing. Oh, what? She's one of them. Yeah. Oh, you're in, you're in chapter 111, Hebrews 11, 1. Oh, this should be 11. Go to oh, sorry. That's okay. Go uh, Hebrews. Yeah. And I'll go 11. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. Go ahead. Here we go. All right. One. One. Okay. Faith shows the reality of what we hope. No. Wait. Yep, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You're right. Keep going. Oh, my God. Faith shows the reality of what we hope of, for it is the evidence of things we cannot see through their faith. The people in days of old earned a good reputation. That's right. Okay, thank you. So what does this tell us about faith? It's the 
evidence of things, hope for the substance of things not seen. The substance of things. When you believe in something, it's not something you can see. That's right. For you and I, yeah. Invisible. Yeah. And we, I'm not, I'm, I don't want Josh to explain any of this because he's been teaching on Hebrews and he can probably take the next half hour on this. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, I mean, we've gone over this back over in Hebrews chapter 3 that part of the problem that Israel had in the past and part of the problem these Christians were having was that they didn't want to live by faith. They didn't want to live by faith. And the rest, the rest that he's promising, that, that faith rest comes by faith. They have to believe that they really can get this rest and stop going to temple. Could you imagine if your whole life, from the time you were a little kid, involved going to temple and talking to the priest and doing all that ritual, and all of a sudden now you're told you don't have to do any of that anymore. You can sit in your house. You can stand at your workbench at work, and you can talk directly to God without ever having to go to the temple. Could you imagine what that was like? So that throne of grace and that rest in Hebrews is by faith. But it's faith that you don't have to keep doing this to talk to God. You can come to God just like that anytime, anywhere. Because you're always in Christ. And that was a... Exactly, yeah. Exactly. I, I, I tell you all the time, I... In my room when I'm walking or whatever, where I don't know. Because it's everywhere. Yeah. I've told you guys many times, one of the best parts of getting up in the morning and going out for a walk and getting some exercise in the morning is I don't have anything else to interrupt me. There's no telephone. There's no computer screen. There's no people talk. It's just me. And I, and I, I wouldn't say the whole walk, but I would say probably 80% of it. I'm talking to God. A lot of times I'm talking about you guys. I go through my list. I start at the bottom. I start in the middle. I just... Praying for you and other people. And I, you can do that. Out taking a walk. Driving your car. Being at work. But that was, that's why. But you can't see that. I can't see that access to God. I can't see that promise of access. I can hear about it. But I, it's not like I can see that, oh, there's a staircase. Oh, and there's a throne to sit. No, I can't see any of that. So this is really important because this is really a good definition for you and I. This is the, the Bible's definition of what faith is. I gave you a definition that essentially is this idea, takes God's promises seriously. Takes God's promises this way and then responds appropriately. Okay, any questions on faith? Okay, meekness. Let's, and this is, in, in a lot of your modern translation, this word is translated gentleness. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, we're going to wait on this verse because we're going to give you a definition here. Meekness, then, is the attitude of, a t of tame power or power under control rather than, just using this as, a, as uh, contrasts, if you were contrasting the fruit to the works of the flesh, rather than selfishness or argumentative power. Think of how many people exercise power selfishly or, or out of they want to win an argument argumentatively or something like this. It's tame power. In fact, this word 
we've given you examples of this before, but what was one of the ways that this word was used, meek, in the Greek culture of their day? Things on horses so they could, they were focused. Yeah. See to the right or the left. Blinders. Yeah, blinders. You, it, it's, it's always, it, Peg and I always have fun. I don't know if you guys ever do this, but if you watch a TV show or a movie and there's an animal in it, dogs in particular, and you have them and they're doing something because they're playing a, a role in the movie. But you can tell the dog, no matter how hard they try to make it look like, the dog is not looking at the actor. The dog is looking over the actor's shoulder at the master that's back there with their little thing that has the dog's attention to tell them what to do. They're focused. And they've got, that dog has all kinds of power. That dog could take off running and nobody on stage is going to catch it. <laughs> Things like that. Uh, and I've always used the example because I grew up as a, as a kid that uh, had a terrible fear of dogs. I'm being on a newspaper route and such. And the fact that you'd have sometimes really big dogs that would meet you. And there were really big dogs that were sweethearts. But there were... My dog is like that. <laughs> somebody, they tried to kill her. Oh. That's not good because he, she wants to play. Yeah, she's come up to us on the fence when we walk by sometimes and talks to us there. But then there's also dogs that they're not tame. They're not under control. They're, not, they're focused on what they want. That's all they're focused on. And they're not under control. So this is what meekness or gent this is why some of your modern translations translate this gentleness because it was, a, it was like an animal that was tame versus an animal that's wild. And meekness was used to distinguish tame versus wild. Controlled versus out of control. And this is controlled power. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I won't call it, oh, you're going to read? Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 21, please, Katie. Okay. So, there's some problems going on in the church. And so when he says, should I come with you a rod? What does he mean by come with you a, with a rod? Spank it. Yeah. Spank it. Spank it. Yeah. 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 Do you want me to show up with a stick? You want to be in trouble? Or would you rather me come in love? Which we would look at love could also be in there, but love in a spirit of meekness. What, what's the difference between meekness here and the idea of the rod? Because it's control. Because it, this isn't always true, but I think probably in their culture. See, you and I have you and I all have a Christian understanding of this, right? So when you discipline your kids, you because you're informed from the Word of God, you know why. What's what is what should be the motivation for you to discipline your kids? Love, because you want something better for them. If you don't figure this out before you leave the house, you're going to have a world of trouble. It's going to be a world of hurt out there for you. So you need to kind of figure some of this out while you're under my umbrella. Okay. So that's, that's why we do that. But in the world in general, what's the number one reason you think most parents probably discipline their kids? Frustration. Anger. Anger. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've watched so many parents that the kid's being bad, the kid's being bad, the kid's being bad, the kid's being bad, and I would have stopped it probably 
maybe I would have missed the first one, but maybe the second one I would have stepped in and done something. But they put up with it, and the parent puts up with it until the parents, pop, you know, I think of the pressure kettle, pops its top, and all of a sudden the parents like, ah! and then and then to me, what they're teaching their kids is, you know, just wait until you get furious, and then you deal with it. And Paul says. Exasperation, yeah, yeah. It's frustration, though. Yeah, both of them, both of them are true. So it's actually meekness. So Paul says, "I don't want to come over there and blow my top at you guys right now." Sometimes when I hear the stuff that's being reported, I kind of feel like I'd like to blow my top and deal with you guys, kind of tough. But Paul says, "I'd rather come over there and just deal with you in love, just spend some nice time together." Do we all understand that? What he's getting at? Okay. But again, I think because of our understanding, if we read this, if we read the word meekness and, and love, we don't understand it because we're thinking usually, I hope, in terms of what, how the Word of God has informed us on these things. But that's not the way most cultures in the history of the world handle things. Most kids are disciplined in the world when people blow their top. When, Some when, parents have violence. Yeah, it and it does. It it it's not. It's no longer loving discipline. It's violence. Exactly. Galatians chapter six, verse one. Holland, if you would read that for us, please. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Okay. So what's the problem going on in the verse? You're in danger of being tempted. You're in danger of being tempted while you're doing what? Helping somebody. Yeah. So you need to take your power and you need to keep it focused, focused or under control. I would even I would even add one other detail on this that, that is part of this idea of meekness is that I honestly think that when you're dealing with a person that's that's caught in a trust trespass in doing this. I don't necessarily always think it's advisable for us as believers to blow our tops with them and vent the flesh getting after them for what they did. But that's, again, sometimes, and it's hard. I mean, if you've ever dealt with uh, with a, a believer that is stubborn and doesn't want to change their character, and it's like, this is like the 10th time I've talked to you about this, there's everything in me wants to just really bite their head off you know, over this. It's like, do you know what you're doing to yourself? Do you know what you're doing to the people around you? So, uh, I'm, all I can say is I've always been thankful. I probably have done it, but I'm just, I'm thankful to God most of the time for, for the spirit producing spirituality because otherwise it's not the way I would respond when I've dealt with those situations. So you have to stay focused so you don't become tempted. Because you could become tempted not to do what that guy's doing, but maybe be tempted to blow your top to actually you start acting carnally. Okay? That would be what Paul says is being overcome by evil. <laughs> you're allowing their evil actions when you're trying to help them make you make a poor choice and be tempted, as Josh said. Thank you. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter two, and uh, let's see, Gary, if you would read verses twenty-three, um, twenty-three through twenty-five. Sorry. Have nothing to do 
with foolishness, ignorant converse, controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Okay. So, the first thing started off with there in verse 23 is he's encouraging them to, Timothy, what should you try to avoid? Yeah. Get in an argument. And keep in mind, he's not talking about an argument over should we go do this or should we go do that. He's talking about an argument here over, does anybody know? It's an argument over doctrine. This is what he's been, he's been telling them. He says, you got these guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus back up there, that he says, they've, they're not doing things right. But he says, don't be drawn into the fights. These guys want to argue with you. They want to debate this. This is what they want to do. And I, interestingly enough, I think this is a, a con continual problem that the church has. Because I see, I listen all the time that these people think it's healthy for us to get on and debate people that have different views from us. Different Christian groups that have different views. And Paul's actually saying, don't get into drawing into those debates. Don't do that. That's not healthy. So that's the first thing. And then he reminds him in verse 24. He says, for the slave of the Lord must not fight. So you're not supposed to be fighting, but be gentle. Now that word gentle is not the word that is sometimes translated by the fruit of the Spirit. This is gentle like a parent would with a little child, the baby. Here is different. What? Here they say different. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, uh, but must be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Yeah. Be patient with difficult people. I like that as a word for that. I have to be very, very patient with my daughter because sometimes, like I said, mm -hmm. too much. Even because my husband is a little bully with her and it's hard. And I said, don't do that because my daughter, she doesn't understand. And I had to be, put my daughter in calm, not to be, you know, nervous and anxious. But my husband sometimes put in like a... So then verse 25 says that in, um, there was one other thing that I was looking for in here that I totally missed on. Oh, it's actually, there, there's an interesting thing in verse 22 that we totally skipped over it, but I think it's part about it. He says, what you actually should be doing is pursuing righteousness, faith, and love, and peace with those that are calling on the Lord out of a clean heart. In other words, you can spend all day fighting battles because there's all kinds of people that want to argue with you and debate. But what about, Tim, but he's telling Timothy, there's believers out there, they're just, they're just calling on the Lord out of a clean heart. Just spend your time teaching and, and helping those guys. These other guys, they don't really want to learn. They just want to debate. That's a hard thing for us to learn. We always think that these people actually want to learn. But what Paul's saying is they don't really want to learn. So then that brings us to verse 25. 
in meekness then, staying controlled, staying focused here, you continue to teach those that literally are in the, the form that we have here, they're posing themselves. They're actually their own worst enemy, these people that are doing these things. And he says, you just need to be controlled with them. This is a little bit similar to what we just came out of in Galatians 6.1. But he says, rather than getting into debates, you just keep training them. And he does, he goes from the word teaching, didasco, to the word paiduo. It's like you're training them as a child. You're admonishing them. You're saying, hey, we have talked about this. This is what the word of God says. No more. Kind of, this is similar to what Paul says over in uh, Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. You know, a heretic, you've warned him twice. After that, you say, we're not going to talk about it anymore. He's not saying, kick the, he never says kick him out of the church. He says, Does, doesn't say that. He says, you avoid them. When they want to come and engage you and argue with you again, you say, we've talked about this. You know what the word of God says. You just don't want to accept it as true. Okay. This is actually somewhat similar. So he says, what you do, he's changing the word teach there to a word training him as a child, which is what you're, which is what you're doing there in this context. And maybe perchance, if you kind of give them those warnings when they want to come and debate and you just give them a warning rather than debating with them again. In other words, I hope you, you all understand verse 25 is a very different response than teaching. He's not using the word teach. He's using the word paiduo to train a child. It's a very different thing. He's talking about the, the way you're responding to them. But you do it with meekness. They probably find a lot of people that don't that aren't meek within there. They're not focused. They're not under control. They want to debate with you. They want to get into it with you. They love a good debate because that's what the flesh likes. It's one of the works of the flesh. It's heiress in the works of the flesh. It's strife. It's contentious. You want to argue back and forth. That's what the flesh likes to do. Even if it's friendly debate. The flesh likes that, okay? Does everybody kind of follow what he's talking about? I don't want to be kind of follow. I hope you do follow what he's getting at. And he's given this instruction to Timothy, but this instruction should be followed by those that are, in, uh, that are um, leading others that he's talking about earlier. But I think it's also important that all of us should know this because all of us can get drug into this, okay? Last one of these, self-control, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Okay, verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Leslie, if you'd read 24 and 25 for us, please. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable would you go on and read the last two verses just to fill this Therefore, in? Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disapproved. Okay. So, um, just to give us some background, the verses right before this, Paul's talking about, you know, when I'm around the Jews, I live like a, he says, when I'm dealing with people that are living under the law, I, I live like I'm under the law. Those people that are lawless, 
Paul's not saying I go out and I act lawlessly, but he says, but I don't fuss over legal details in terms of what's going on. And if the people are weak, I act like a weak person. I'm sensitive to things. In other words, I become everything. And Paul says in that, he says, he uses the illustration, if you're in a race, he says, you run, and he says, they do that to receive a prize. So he says, you ought to run that. And that person that's running, when they're, when they're going to compete in the games, when they're going to do this, they exercise self-control. Self in other words, if you're going to compete, if you really are serious about competing, are there certain things you're going to do? Train. You're going to train. You're going to eat differently. You're not going to go, oh, you know what? Pumpkin pie is pretty good after a big meal of spaghetti, right, Josh? <laughs> I think I'm going to... This is what the men's group had last night. We had some... We had some Costco pumpkin pie after this really big, huge plate of spaghetti, you know. And it's like, if you were training, you probably would have had some of that spaghetti and maybe would have passed on the pie or asked for a smaller piece. I don't know. But you don't do that. I was training for a eating contest. There you go. Okay, yeah, yeah. I wasn't pointing my finger at you. I came home and told Peg. I said, man, I ate way too much. But he says... They're exercising self-control. What's what in light of what Paul's just said in the context, when he says self-control, they exercise self-control. He's implying that for us. Why would we be exercising self-control? It might be very saving for don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but uh, but only one person gets a prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize. That will fade away. But we do, do it for an eternal prize. Okay. And it's the word disciplined in there. Yes. They exercise discipline. Yes. Okay. Did you have a, were you going to make comment? Well, you asked, uh, why do you do it? You do it to, to use love. And you have that back in the context. It's why he, he's... Uh, He's uh, restricting his freedom to win people to the gospel. So he's not, Paul says, I, you know, I could get out there and I could say, I, you're fussing over dietary stuff. I'm going to do that because you know what? I found out that ham tastes really good. So I'm going to eat ham. There. It's your problem. No. Paul says, no. I'm going to control my appetite. I'm going to control what I want to do to do what's best for you. In fact, at the end of this... To um, me, he's saying, I'm not going to make the focus on Jewish or Gentile customs because they're really not the issue. The issue is Christ. That's right. Yes. But he's exercising self-control so that even what he might want, he's able to put that other person's need first. Yeah, which I think is what you're saying. I mean, it really is even more than the body. It brings out the body because of the illustration of uh, working out. But if you go back to 1 Corinthians 6, and he talks about um, the fornication and how you can be a slave to all that, and then he comes down to verse 19, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which ye have of God and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And I would take that to be... Exhibition of self-control. Sure, yeah. Using the body and the spirit, and ultimately the soul too, mm -hmm. in a way that is glorifying to God. 
What's the definition? We have to have something. Oh, I didn't give you a definition of self-control. I got we went to the verse right away. It's an attitude that doesn't let our wants or needs get in the way of helping others or trip up trip others up. doesn't let our wants or needs and those wants or needs are different it's not just like josh is saying it's not just all physical stuff are there emotional things that we want yeah are there things even in the realm of our spirit that sometimes we think about that you know we think and i i'm so interested in this let's put it here, here's an example this is a crazy example i don't encourage you to I don't encourage anybody to ever skip church or Bible study or stuff. It's good for, fellowship is good for us and that. But you know what? In the realm of your spirit, you know that sometimes that there are needs that people have. And let's say in the realm of your spirit, you really want to be at Bible study. You want that fellowship. You want to take some time in the word. You want to pray together with people. But God brings another believer into your life, another person. And it's so plain that God wants you to take time with them, but you're torn now. Do I do this thing that I really want to go to Bible study or this thing over here? And the thing is, they're both are good things, aren't they? But you might realize that maybe God really has put this person right in your path and that person needs your time. And in the realm of your spirit, even in the realm of your spirit, you have to say, I need to weigh. Because it's not everything's not always black and white, is it? There's, there's times that you have to kind of exercise some discernment to say, both can be acts of love. But maybe this is the better act of love in this circumstance to take the time with this individual. I'm just throwing out a scenario that might be the case. Flip over to chapter 7 here and look at this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he's talking about issues of marriage. And he says in verses 7 and 8, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, But I desire all men to be even as myself, but each man has his own gift from God, and one this and another one that. But I say to those that are unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain like me. Apparently meaning Paul is either widowed or uh, not married, divorced or something, but verse but he goes on verse 9, but if you do not have, and I don't have verse 9 listed here, so you should add verse 9 on there, but if you do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Which I still do not, in my opinion, I don't think that's the best reason to get married. But Paul is saying here, if they don't have self-control, which I I have, uh, this is, I'll just be honest, I have my own questions in, in, about this passage in terms of what Paul is getting at. Um, I think Paul is giving his opinion, but because the opinion was part of Scripture, then it obviously was something God wanted said. Um, but it's not a hard and fast rule, let's put it that way, um, which I think is an important thing for us to realize. But this is a word for self-control. There are some people that just, honestly, they just, they're, I don't know, just to be very blunt, their drive is so strong that they, it's, hard, it's really hard for them to control themselves. And says, well, let them go ahead and get married. I sometimes think, well, let's sit down. Let's really talk about the Christian life. Maybe that's what we really need to be doing here. But uh, there we go. I thought maybe that's where you were going. But then you jump back to chapter 6. And I was like, okay. But this is another thing. Self-control, uh, bringing some of that into control. Second Peter chapter 1. I'm just reading these last ones here as we conclude. Second Peter 
chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And he gave, he's just given them a list of things. He says, you have all these things now. But he's, he, he told them back in the context, God's given you all things for life and godliness. So now he's essentially saying, now bring these things to bear. Bring these in. Put this with this and this with this. And he kind of puts this together. Verse 8. For if these things are in you, these things he just told you about, and they're abounding, you are neither idle nor, they do neither constitute you idle or is unfruitful uh, in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, in the, in the experiential knowledge of him. I'm sorry, I need to quit reading the Greek because it's messing me up, pardon me. For in whom these things are not present, this one is blind, this one is myopic or short-sighted. They've got... Um, you ever, you ever seen it? You ever meet anybody that's nearsighted and you take their glasses and put them on and you're like, how do you see anything? Because it's, because <laughs> it's so, I mean, I've, I've had my whole life. I can't see up close to save my life. I couldn't make this print out in my, I can't hold it out far enough away. I've had still, have, I still have pretty good distance vision. Always have. But this word myopic means they're short-sighted. They can only see up close like this. I remember my grandmother when I was a kid. Her vision was so bad, but she would read the paper and she'd read it like this. She'd like hold it up here with one eye and would read it. And I was just like, I don't know how you do that, but she'd look, she really would. She'd sit there and read it like this. He's saying they're blind and myopic. If, if you don't have these qualities in you as a believer, you're not really seeing the picture. You are, all you can see is what's right there in your face and they've forgotten the cleansing of their old sins. As a believer, you've forgotten this. Did you want to add verse 6, where self-control occurs? Um, I was, for some reason, I was thinking when I went through this that it was down here below. Oh, at the end of verse 6, and in your knowledge, self-control, and your self-control, patience. Did I just, did I put down the wrong verse on here? You have seven. I have verses, no, I have verses 8 and 10, or 8 through 10 here. Okay, well, let's go back up to verse 6. Yeah, so in your experiential knowledge, self-control, and your self-control, patience, and your in your uh, patience then, um, godliness. But he says, if these things are abounding in you, so self-control being one of them, what you're doing is you're forgetting of your the sins that have been cleansed, verse, uh, verse 10, therefore, rather, brothers, be diligent to make firm your calling and election. In other words, in the way that you function then, you ought to be making sure, you ought to be bringing these things to bear so that this is so sure, you can so surely see your salvation that you're not going to doubt it. This person's a believer, but sometimes they can become so idle and unfruitful that there's doubts and problems that they have. Uh, and for by doing these things, you won't stumble. In other words, Paul says, if a man thinks he stands, let him take heed or let him pay attention lest he to stumble. But that's an arrogant guy that thinks, oh, I'm not going to fall. But Peter's not saying that here. What Peter's saying is when you're actually actively living the Christian life and you are using the things God's given you, you don't stumble in that situation. You know when we stumble? We stumble when we become arrogant and lazy and get distracted by all the other things that are going on. And self-control is one of those things that comes to bear on this. So thank you for taking us back to verse 6. I would have gone through this. And uh, when I read through this, I don't know how I, I totally missed the whole, the absence of our word self-control here. But yeah, we bring self-control to bear on that.
it is. But anyway, when we, so we come to self-control there at the end, it's just the fact that there are, there are certain things that we really want. Physical appetites, we get that. There's appetites of the soul. There's even, shall we say, there's even appetites, uh, things of interest with regard to our spirit, which we gave an illustration. And we don't let those things get in the way of serving others, of demonstrating love to them taking time with other believers the way God wants us to, putting them first. So all of these qualities, again, as we said at the outset, none of these are things you work at. If you're working to produce these, if you're working at trying to do this, then it's no longer the fruit from the Spirit. It's now going to be the fruit of filling your name. But you want it to be the fruit from the Spirit. The reason we're taking you through these is so you have an idea of what this what these actually look like, the kind of context or situations in which you use those, so that when you are spiritual, you can say, oh, this is where this is, and this is appropriate in these different settings, in these different circumstances. Okay.